Talo for Lava. You're listening to Pacific Waves from RNZ Pacific, Wau Koroi Hawkins. Coming up, we look at some early warning lessons learned from Tonga's volcanic eruption and tsunami. How they should actually emphasize more on their overall communication network as well as telecommunication infrastructure. Also, Pacifica warned to be vigilant against rheumatic fever in children and teenagers. I think what I didn't do at that time was to talk to somebody about the pain I was feeling. And the New Zealand government is being urged to show regional leadership in upcoming negotiations for a global plastics treaty. For Indigenous, coastal and marginalised communities who contribute to the crisis the least yet to be the worst of its impacts. The volcanic eruption and tsunami in Tonga were among the worst natural disasters the Pacific has seen in recent years, both in terms of their ferocity and unpredictability. Last month, the World Bank estimated the damage to be over 90 million US dollars, equivalent to 18% of Tonga's GDP. However, despite widespread destruction to houses and infrastructure, only four people were actually killed during the disaster, a statistic that has been put down to good preparedness and effective early warning systems. Joining me is disaster risk resilience expert Dr. Papon Fakrudin, who has designed and facilitated 26 tsunami early warning systems across the Asia-Pacific region since the devastating Boxing Day tsunami of 2004. Dr. Bapon is currently working as a technical director for Tonkin and Taylor. Bula, Dr. Bapon, so starting with Tonga, what were the lessons learned from the eruption of the Hunga Tonga Hunga Hapai submarine volcano and subsequent tsunami? Thank, thanks a lot. Uh, I think this is one of the very uh, milestone or critical or complex disaster, as we can say, um, in the world perspectives. And uh, often, actually, we don't see such kind of things, a combination with, you know, cascading, compounding and complex uh, disaster. Um, and that actually happened in Tonga on the 15th of January. And as you saw, the Pacifica community uh, with the less resources, Tonga actually able to create a quite uh, strong uh, response on that such kind of, you know, complex disaster that happened, in Tonga, happened there. And as well as the casualty was quite less, um, our deepest condolence, the four people that has been passed away in this particular event. But um, as, as, as a community and as, as a country, they actually responded quite well, I should say, uh, even though there was actually huge um, infrastructure damage. As you saw the World Bank report, they come up with like total damage was uh, 90.4 million uh, US dollar, or which is like an uh, around 18% of their GDP. Um, but you know, on the other side, um, there are actually very less people actually get injured or affected because they know actually the history, they know that how to react, they're actually able to respond themselves with their whanu as, as well as culture. Uh, to respond to such kind of incident quite well. One of the big things that happened in Tonga that was quite an issue was the telecoms going down with the with the undersea cable uh, getting smashed and uh, uh, most of their comms was out for 
at least a week of total zero comms, which was very, very um, traumatizing for family overseas and for trying to find out what was happening on the ground. What What is your your view of that that part of the disaster? Yep, I think that's one of the very good points you raised. Uh, uh, on a, such kind of you know complex disaster, and the critical infrastructure redundancy is quite important, and especially on the communication side. Uh, even if you look at any single or small disaster that happened uh, is the most vulnerable infrastructure is our communication. We often actually cut out to sending the early warning or even a disaster information from the national to the community level because there are either actually the uh, mobile connection disrupted, there is a lack of electricity or maybe the tower is not working properly. And, and and that has been raised uh, over and over many times in the past, and um, as as a government, as a society, or as a as a nation, we need to be make sure that how we have a redundant multiple system in our, in place, and how actually we are able to make sure that uh, there is not only just you know submarine cable, there are only alternative communication system in place. So if one disrupted, another could be actually provide some backup systems. And I think that's one of the things uh, Tonga maybe had a quite lessons learned this time that how they should actually emphasize more on their overall communication network as well as telecommunication infrastructure. But as well, um, the COVID may be a good example where actually it gives all the nations throughout the globe that how important this telecommunication or communication network is uh, when everything is goes digitization. Uh, our main means of communication is actually uh, through internet, through uh, telecommunication. And if you don't have a quite strong infrastructure in place, it could be quite critical to communicate uh, at this present moment. Um, th th there are actually some initiatives also going on um, in the Pacific through multiple projects to how actually they could enhance their rapid alert notification systems. For an example, you can have a your normal communication systems, which could be quite good for your cyclone or maybe normal flooding or maybe a slow onset disaster like you know drought and other kind of things. But when there is a rapid disaster such as like a tsunami or earthquake happen, and which could actually create a huge disruption on the infrastructure, we need to have a quite redundant rapid alert notification system so that the information could be reached out quite faster, um, able to reach out with multiple ways. And in that regards, uh, there has been a couple of systems that we implemented in the, in the Indian Ocean back in 2004 tsunami, which we call like a rapid tsunami alert notification system. Uh, and that has sort of promoted by ITU, like International Telecommunication Regulatory Authority, that how we can actually enhance our overall emergency communication systems. And those are actually progressing in, in the Pacific to look at how the telecom sector closely work with disaster management as well as meteorological services to enhance their overall communication system in place. Yeah, you, you made an interesting point um, uh, when we were talking earlier about like, the, the traditional mindset of development and infrastructure development is like roads and wharves and bridges and these kind of things. Um, uh, you, were, you were saying that maybe there might be a need to, to shift the mentality as well and recognize the importance of, of telecom infrastructure. Absolutely. I think um, uh, our mindset always works on actually 
or our priorities always goes for actually quite development infrastructure in terms of you know housing, buildings, road network, those kind of criticality um, or critical infrastructure. But um, we often actually try to sideline our uh, telco or our emergency communication infrastructure because this normally doesn't need if there is any emergency comes. And I think that, and again, I would say that COVID could be a good example, even in New Zealand or in very other, other developed countries, still we have, we are using a couple of those copper connection, connected internet. There is a lack of fiber network. There are actually not all the part of the country is actually well covered by 4G or uh, telecom um, mobile networks. So uh, that gives us a, maybe a realization now that why actually we need to spend um, or divert our focus on uh, enhancing the communication infrastructure so that every part of the countries, every people in the society able to well connected to with their nearest one, with their dearest one, as well as with their business and other um, contingency or continuity. New Zealand's Minister for Pacific Peoples, Aupito William Sio, has opened up about his own traumatic journey with rheumatic fever. The serious illness disproportionately impacts Pacifica children, with around 33% of cases reported last year within Pacific communities. There is currently no vaccine for rheumatic fever, and left untreated, it can develop into rheumatic heart disease and even death. Alpito William Sio spoke about his own experiences with the illness to RNZ Pacific reporter Lydia Lewis. It is preventable. It's a disease that many parents just find the world. I'm recalling when I got sick uh, at the age of 15. My parents didn't know what they didn't know. None of us knew. So knowledge is really an empowering factor in this and with been supporting initiatives of the co-design by Māori and Pacific and Common Communities in Auckland to make sure that information is culturally appropriate and that we're helping to inform the community in a way that the communities can better understand what this illness is is about. Um, And that includes the piloting of free dental care for adults with rheumatic fever. And just using awareness of raising events such as drama, radio, and social media that's appropriate also for young people. Because I, I just, my, my recollection when I got sick was it just built up my, it was just debilitating. I was feeling pain in my joints and I just didn't know why. I was bedridden for three months and there wasn't necessarily a cure, as you say, preventative. So I was just bedridden, wasn't allowed to walk or run or do anything to allow my heart, the leak in my heart, to to heal. And what was frustrating for both my parents, especially my dad, was he could see visibly I seemed to be okay, but didn't understand that the, the illness was internally and so a lot of that information, we had to sort of package information in such a way so that parents are receiving it and feeling empowered to be able to to be mindful and to stay vigilant when their children do get a cough. 
And I also hear that it may have ruined your chances of joining a league team. Tell me about that. <laughs> well, I was into sports like all young people. <laughs> I was playing soccer in the morning for the Altara Cubs and playing league in the afternoon for the Scorpions in Altara. And I was good at it, <laughs> but sports. And at that time, we all had dreams and aspirations that someday we would be playing for the big leagues. Um, but that wasn't to be after being bedridden for three months and feeling really, you know, debilitating. And then being told afterwards, after being released from a hospital, that I shouldn't be playing any more sports for a while. That was sort of the end of any sports aspirations. Gee, that must have been really tough for you as a youngster to handle. Yeah, well, all my other friends continued and um, they did well in the area of sports. I I think, yeah, and... Um, I think I ended up doing typing. <laughs> typing has served me well. I was the only boy in that class. <laughs> but it has served me well throughout my life. Yeah. Your message to just a 15-year-old listening to the radio and hearing that you went through this and, and where you are now, what's your message to that young kid who is listening with rheumatic fever or rheumatic heart disease? I think what I didn't do at that time was to talk to somebody about the pain I was feeling in my joints and just shrugged it off as sort of knocks from the sports field. I think if you're ever feeling um, not quite sure about your body, talk to somebody that you trust, but more particularly talk to somebody that knows something. I, I wish I had done that because people would ask me, are you okay? And I just said, yeah, and pretended like I was okay. So I think that would be my message because you just don't know what you don't know. So it's always good to talk to people who do know. If you have a regular doctor that you see or the family visits, talk to them. Ask them if you have some time to speak to them without mum and dad around. <laughs> That would be one of the key things, or at least talk to people that you respect and trust at school, a teacher. Let them know how your body's feeling and and the concerns that you might have because I think that will ensure that you get the support and help that you might need. Health authorities urge parents, particularly in Pacific communities, to watch out for sore and swollen joints and ongoing fever that lasts a few days and any rash over the elbows, wrists, knees, ankles and spine. Rheumatic fever starts with a sore throat and it's important that your child's sore throats get checked. Greenpeace Aotearoa has welcomed the first steps taken last week towards a global plastics treaty. Up to 12.7 million tonnes of plastic enter the world's ocean every year, with scientists documenting 700 marine species affected by ocean plastic. On Thursday, countries attending the fifth session of the United Nations Environmental Assembly in Nairobi and hosted online adopted a mandate to open negotiations towards a legally binding global plastics treaty. 
Greenpeace Aotearoa described the move as one for the history books as a global approach will now be designed to curb the plastic pollution crisis. The organization's plastics campaigner, Jurassa Lee, joins me now. Bula, and welcome back on Pacific Waves. What's the significance of this mandate the UN has adopted in Nairobi? It's a huge deal. It's a great opportunity, but not not quite over yet. Um, we don't have the treaty. We just have a mandate to go away and draft that treaty, to form a committee who will draft that treaty. Is is that less than what you hoped for? Or is, is, are you still happy that this is a positive step? Or It's monumental. Um, it's, it's a really good move. We have the resolution provides intention for the way that this draft, um, the direction that this draft will take. And when I say intention, it's in the title, you know, it's, it's going to be legally binding. There will be some parts in there that will be voluntary, um, but it's a very good sign that there is agreement that there is a problem that there is an understanding that um, the problem requires a solution that considers the entire life cycle of of plastic. So I'm watching for the next steps and we're very happy um, so far. So you mentioned next steps. What what are the next steps? Where where, where to from here? So the next steps is, um, is the formation of an intergovernmental negotiation committee. Uh, which will happen, I believe, around June and July, June or July. Um, It will, they they want to, they need to report back on that at um, the the UNEA 6, so the the next Environment Assembly. And the hope is that it will be complete, the process will be complete, by the end of 2024, if not sooner than that. So in that mandate, is um, the mandate includes a timeline, which is, which is also great to be time-bound as well. So this doesn't go on for years and years. The last time we spoke also, you were lobbying New Zealand to take a strong stance and, and sort of a, show regional leadership in this space. Have, have, you, have they responded to that? Uh, what... what um, actions have they been taking an indication that they're leaning in that direction? Um, no, that will be our next step. So um, we will reach out, Greenpeace will reach out um, to the government. And I guess we want to bring awareness to them that, you know, for Pacific people um, who are on the front line of the climate crisis, um, that plastic pollution exacerbates it. Um, and, the New Zealand government um, really needs to step up and show some leadership for Indigenous, coastal and marginalised communities who contribute to the crisis the least yet to be the worst of its impacts. And I would like them to step up and see how they can be active in the drafting of that treaty and help amplify Pacific voices in that because at the moment, they are largely missing. Um, and so it's really important that they're captured and that their needs are considered and the impacts of plastics are considered when that tr- tr- treaty is drafted. So Greenpeace will continue putting that pressure on because until it's signed, sealed and delivered, there is still plenty of room for us to continue ag- 
advocating for the strongest and most substantial treaty. That brings us to the end of Pacific Waves for today. Remember, you can download us free to your device from Spotify, iHeart, Apple Podcasts. And if you're using Apple, please leave us a rating so others can also find us. Kakite anong.